Welcome to the Middle East 101 series. I'm Alessandro Duino, Principal Research Fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. And today, in our Middle East 101, we are going to talk about the centrality of Central Asia. And we have the right person for the job, an esteemed colleague and a friend, Raffaello Pantucci. Raffaello is currently based in Singapore. He's a senior fellow at Rajaratnam Institute of International Study, better known at RSIS, at Nanyang Technological University. He's also associate senior fellow at RUSI, Royal United Service Institute. And basically he spent all of his life in four letter think tank and institute all over the world. Shanghai Academy of Social Science, CSIS, IISS from London to Washington. And I think also at King's College London and in other think tank uh, at the European Union with ACFR. Uh, Raffaello is an expert on China and Central Asia, and he recently just published his book, Sinostan, that we are very proud to have the chance to present here at MEI. Having said that, why, there will be probably the question, we are talking in the Middle East 101 about Central Asia. Central Asia historically has a very important linchpin with the Middle East. Uh, before even uh, the arrival of Islam and Central Asian country are a majority uh, Muslim country, Central Asia was in between two empires, the Persian Empire and the Chinese one. And from the time uh, it also began at the time when, for example, Samarkand was the heart uh, with Bukhara of the ancient Silk Road, also basically a center for Islamic scholarship and for science. In the 14th century, Samarkand was uh, a very important area where astronomy was developed with Ulan Bey, or very important uh, scholar like uh, Ibn Al-Sina, a polymath, better known in the West with uh, his uh, Latin name Avicenna. Since then, the Timurid dynasty was at the heart of Central Asia. And later on, if we go more to the modern time, we are going to see Bolshevik in 1920 giving a national entity in all that area, and of course the Soviet empire, something that from cultural, uh, economic, uh, and security is still very present now in, uh, in the area. But now talking about modern Asia, as I said, we have the right person of the job. So Raffaello, the floor is yours. Thank you uh, very much, Alessandro, for that generous introduction. Uh, he forgot to mention I am a fellow Italian as well, which is frankly the most important thing you should hear about me and uh, him together. So it's a huge pleasure to come and talk to you today about Central Asia. Um, and specifically, I'm going to try to focus on modern Central Asia. Um, now, uh, here's a brief rundown of my introduction, uh, of the presentation. I'm going to try to go through the region broadly and then talk about the end of the Soviet Union, post-Soviet period, and take us all the way up to today, because I think it's a fascinating region. And here, you know, there's a, there's a touch of analyst bias in when I say this, but I think it's a really important moment at the moment for Central Asia because it's been a very complicated year, well, two years really for the region, and a lot of big things are happening there, which have been digging into the past and really bringing it up today. So I will uh, touch on all these issues. As Alessandro very kindly mentioned, I have got a book out that you can purchase. Uh, it's available at all the bookstores. I've seen it at Kinokunya downtown, so you can even go buy it in there, or you can buy it on Amazon, of course. It is called Sinusan, and it's basically looking at China's relations with the five Central Asian countries and Afghanistan. Um, it draws on research that I've done over, you know, gosh, I've been traveling back and forth to the region since at least 2010. 
I've been to all five of the countries of the region a number of times, uh, looking specifically at China's relations, but also trying to understand the region more broadly. So it really draws on all that and, and brings it all together. And that also informs the presentation I'm going to give you here today. Now, when we're talking about Central Asia, um, you know, it's, it's useful, I find, to have a map <laughs> to see what we're talking about and where it is. Um, and as you can see here, I, I've got a map up there which shows you, you know, China and the kind of wider region. Now, the countries we're talking about when we're talking about Central Asia. Now, does this have a magical pointer? It does. Look at this. So the countries we're talking about are here. These are the five countries of Central Asia, the Sands countries. Kazakhstan, which is the biggest one. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, which is there. Tajikistan, which is kind of buried in there. You've got Uzbekistan here, Turkmenistan here. And yes, and Tajikistan is the last one you can see just there. So those are the five regions we traditionally associate with Central Asia. But there is a perspective that says, in fact, we should also include Afghanistan within what we consider Central Asia. Afghanistan, of course, sits here. And even there is a view which I think, which is that we should think about China's region of Xinjiang as in some ways the sixth or seventh Central Asian country, depending on which one you want to think about. And the reason I say that is because if we look at the countries of this region, they're all very interlinked. And they're very interlinked for a number of reasons. First, the communities that exist there. So you have large populations. Kazakhstan, as the name suggests, is the home of the Kazakh people. But there are roughly one million ethnic Kazakhs that live in China. And bear in mind, Kazakhstan is only a country of 20 million people. So you know, you're talking about a not inconsiderable minority that live in a neighboring country. At the same time, if we go up to the north of Kazakhstan, where it shares its borders with Russia, there are somewhere in the region of, you know, about 20% of the population lives up there, and that population is mostly ethnic Russian. If we go to Central Asia, and we look at the sort of countries that are all scrambled around here, you see there there's a little mess, which is called the Fagana Valley. Well, the Fagana Valley is the most densely populated region of part of this sort of wider region. And you've got communities there of Uzbeks, of Tajiks, who live sort of scattered around. And they don't live necessarily in the borders of the countries you'd expect. If you look at the ancient cities of Bukhara or Samarkand that Alessandro mentioned, there are actually more Tajiks living in some of these cities than there are of Uzbeks. So you've got countries and cities that are very, very kind of mixed and have been mixed for a very long time. The communities that sort of predominate in this region were, you know, once upon a time nomadic tribes that would frankly roam around these regions back and forth. You know, then someone in Moscow sat down and drew borders around them and said, you are now Uzbeks, you are now Kazakhs and define the borders that we can see. And much the same as you look at sort of parts of Africa where you see these very artificial borders, you can see there that border that we see between uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan is certainly not a natural border. <laughs> it's certainly one that was, you know, drawn on a map somewhere in Moscow and has, you know, consequently created a very sort of awkward and difficult situation. Now, when these borders were sort of defined, it was done by uh, the Russian uh, Empire and the Soviet Union, who sort of divided up these countries into these different sort of SSRs uh, that were operating within the sort of Soviet Union. And each of them was, you know, predominantly dominated by one community, the Kazakhs, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, uh, the Turkmen, uh, or the Kyrgyz, depending on which one you're talking about. But as I say, within those, there were lots of other communities that lived. And the borders were also some would say, specifically drawn to complicate relations between these countries, to create tensions between them so that ultimately Moscow could exert easier control over it. At the same time, the infrastructure in the region was all built to ultimately go northward towards Moscow. And the arrangements that were established between the various countries were to create dependencies on each other. So during the Soviet SSR period, you had a situation where some countries would create the grain. So Kazakhstan was a big grain producer. 
others in the country who trade this grain for energy, for electricity. So Tajikistan used to be a big electricity generator for the region. And so they used to do barter trade between themselves. But this is a barter trade that was determined by Moscow. It wasn't one that was you know, norm normally created using market forces. Um, and so you have these countries that were only recently sort of defined, um, that were defined in this very artificial way with communities that frankly were used to more nomadic lifestyles before being told to sort of sit down and be resident in the region. The five countries have got uh, a very uh, different kind of nature and history and economies, um, which uh, I, will, I will come to uh, a little bit later. But you know, at the moment, I think the key things to remember is that when we're thinking about the five countries of the region and we think about them today, Kazakhstan is the biggest and the richest. It's got very large energy resources there, which used to be owned by Moscow and all go north and still do go for the most part, actually northward towards uh, Moscow, but actually increasingly growing numbers actually go to China. And China, I think it counts for, I think the majority of uh, hydrocarbon exports that uh, Kazakhstan exports at the moment. Uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are very aid dependent countries, very poor. Turkmenistan sits on the world's fourth largest gas reserves. And Uzbekistan was traditionally the trader of the region. And if you go back and look at sort of Soviet times, the two big cities in the region were Almaty in Kazakhstan and Tashkent, which was really the kind of the heart, cultural heart of the entire region. And during the Soviet period was very the sort of the dominant part. So that's the region and its background uh, uh, taking you right up today. But I think if you're trying to understand the region and its sort of contemporary history, you really have to start with the end of the Cold War, because that's really when these countries were created. And of course, at the end of the Cold War, there was one very important issue that happened right next door, which was the Soviet Union lost its war in Afghanistan and unceremoniously left it in 1988. Uh, and then we can see in that picture, there's some tanks leaving across the bridge in Termez into Uzbekistan. And that was kind of the end of the Soviet experience in Afghanistan and led to, frankly, chaos in Afghanistan, which in some ways is still um, going on today. And as that happened, we see a sort of concatenation of events happen. In 1989, we see the Berlin Wall come down. And then in 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev sort of steps down from his position and we see the end of the Soviet Union. Now, what's interesting is to look at Central Asia within this period, because Central Asia was not actually that keen to be freed from the Soviet yoke. <laughs> they were quite happy <laughs> living, being controlled by Moscow. These were countries that were led by, you know, quite closed sort of systems. Now, in Kazakhstan, there had been some trouble back in 1986. There was protests when uh, uh, the government in Moscow tried to change the leadership and change it to a leader that the locals didn't like. And there was some sort of protests around. We, the history around this is a bit cloudy because at the time, of course, reporting in Kazakhstan was very weak. Um, so there was some sort of trouble. And in 1990, as the sort of Soviet Union was falling apart, and you could see Moscow slowly pulling back into the center, in Tajikistan, we see the first rumblings of what later became a civil war uh, in, the wake of the, uh, in the wake of the sort of end of the Soviet Union. But so you can see sort of chaos was brewing in the region. But when the leaders in the region were told, you are no longer, you know, Moscow is not answering, you're now independent countries, you're going to have to go work it out by yourselves, the region initially resisted. And actually, Kazakhstan was the last of the countries that sort of came out of the Soviet Union to sign its independence. It did it in late, in well, mid-December uh, 1991, and soon after that, in Christmas 1991, of course, the Soviet Union came grinding to a close. But Kazakhstan was the last one. They really didn't want to let go. <laughs> they wanted to be part of this sort of Soviet family. They liked it. They were sort of everything was happy there. You had very Soviet structures that were left in place. Um, they didn't really want to break away in contrast to the European side. 
you know, countries like Ukraine, the Baltic countries were very keen to break away. And they were amongst the first to sort of really pull away uh, from the Soviet Union. So it's a very different story in, Uzbek in, 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 the Soviet, in, in, in Central Asia. In fact, in Kazakhstan, one of the last things I remember they did was they had a vote sometime in 1991, the referendum on do we want to leave the Soviet Union? And actually the majority voted to stay. <laughs> and I don't think that was one of these rigged Soviet votes where, you know, people would sit there, you know, you go look at what just happened in, uh, in Lokhansk and Donetsk, where, you know, they had these votes in, in Ukraine in the Donbass, where you had 97% turnout saying yes, which, you know, one suspects is suspicious. You know, these were 90% votes that frankly people believed because the people really didn't want to kind of leave the warm embrace of the Soviet Union. And Moscow really had to tell them, no, out on your own. But at the same time, as Moscow said to them, you're out on your own, Moscow still kept some sort of a grip and tie on the region. And the tie really came through three institutional structures that were created. Um, and I've got the three logos up there that you can see. The one on the top is the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is essentially a construct that was developed in the wake of the end of the Soviet Union, which basically created a kind of a, 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 a parastatal structure uh, well, supranational uh, structure for whichever of the former Soviet countries want to be part of it. And we see a lot of them actually joining. A lot of the European ones did not. But if we look at sort of the Caucasus, or we look at Central Asia, or we even look down at some of the other countries um, that you see in, in Far Eastern Europe, so Belarus in particular, they stayed members of these. And the three structures, one was the top one is the Commonwealth of Independent States. The one underneath it is the Collective Security Treaty Organization. And then the one underneath it is actually the logo of the Eurasian Economic Union, which actually only came about later in the sort of mid-2010s, but developed out of the Commonwealth of Independent States to create a kind of economic structure to mirror the CSTO, which was kind of the military structure, both of which linked to the Commonwealth of Independent States. And essentially what these did was these still gave Moscow some ability to retain some sort of links to these countries at a sort of institutional level. Um, but at the same time, the hard infrastructure of the region, Central Asia in particular, was still very wide in Moscow's direction. And throughout the 1990s in particular, one of the interesting things you can see is that the Soviet Union, or what was now Russia, the Russian Federation, did a very tricky game of arbitrage. <laughs> what the Russians would do is they were selling their oil and gas to Europe at quite high prices, while they were purchasing Central Asian oil and gas at much lower prices. Now, the Central Asians, of course, didn't have any infrastructure to be able to build or any capacity to build pipelines to new places. So they were kind of obliged to continue using the old infrastructure that existed to sell their gas and energy, uh, the oil to Moscow. And Moscow would sort of do this arbitrage trick of selling their own one to Europe, where they knew they'd get a better price, and buy Central Asians uh, gas and oil at a much uh, cheaper price. And there's a lot of sort of relationships like that. They're basically leftover relationships from the Soviet Union, which, you know, given the nature of the infrastructure, given the relative poverty in this region and the lack of any sort of ability to develop their own uh, capability and interests, um, you know, we see it continues. And so the relationship really still continues to have a very significant relationship towards Russia, but a relationship that Russia can control in a very light touch way. And so one of the other things we see happen is essentially chaos start to break out in the region. The first and most violent was the Tajik civil war, which erupted, you know, as I say, it started to show up in the late 1990s, in the early, in, sorry, in 1990. Uh, but then by 1991, 92, it really took off and became a fully fledged civil war uh, between the two sort of sides of the country. Um, in Afghanistan, of course, when the Soviets left and we see what, you know, the Mujahideen uh, take over the country, that country slipped into a civil war, which then really dominated the next uh, uh, years. And initially, the Taliban, of course, weren't present. The Taliban only really came about in the sort of mid to late 90s, uh, when we see the kind of warlord era that had taken over in Afghanistan. 
you know, really the Taliban sort of evolved out of that to try to sort of restore some control and sense of justice to the country, which was completely lacking. So you had these wars that were, were taking place in the region, and you see all the different countries, you know, and as these countries came out of the Soviet Union, one of the interesting things that happened was you see the leaderships that evolved were essentially the same leaderships you had during the Soviet period. Basically, whoever was in charge when, you know, the chair stopped moving and the Soviet Union fell apart, ended up taking over afterwards. And so we see in, all, in four of the countries, in Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and uh, Tajikistan, literally the same people who were in charge continue on. <laughs> so you essentially have these sort of Soviet leaders who just sort of continue on uh, running the countries. In Kyrgyzstan, uh, an interesting development, you know, initially, the first people that came about were that were the same sort of leaders, but actually Askar Akayev rose up and he had a slightly different approach. He actually, there we see a slightly different approach being taken. We see the country trying to break away and forge a slightly more independent path. And they did a very big effort to try to reach out to the United States in particular. In Turkmenistan, the country really closes in on itself and becomes this very bizarre authoritarian country, very closed off in the world, which actually is still kind of true to this day, to be honest. And the interesting thing about Turkmenistan is while we see all four of the other Central Asian countries join these Russian structures I've indicated, Turkmenistan didn't. They stayed independent. They kind of became observers of a lot of these structures as time went on, but the leader decided actually, you know, he wanted to craft a very different and very independent and neutral foreign policy, which still um, persists to this day. Um, in Kazakhstan, we see the Kazakhs, uh, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, in Kazakhstan, we see the Kazakhs uh, decide to craft their own, um, that's not something I can do anything about, uh, their own, uh, they started to mine their energy reserves and start to actively encourage Western super majors to come into the country to try to help them develop these resources to start exporting it and taking profit of it themselves. Um, and in uh, Kyrgyzstan, we see, as I said, they reach out to the Westerners. And the other side of this story is we see outside powers starting to reach in. Now, Russia, as I said, continued to have a kind of hold on this region and continues to maintain that control. The Turks initially tried to take advantage of the fact that in four of these countries, you have populations that are sort of Turkic language speaking and have links to the sort of Turkic uh, world. Uh, the exception is Tajikistan, which is, of course, has a Persian uh, heritage and closer, therefore, to Iran. Um, and in fact, we see Iran trying to sort of come in and step in to be the kind of big father to, uh, uh, to, the, um, to the Iranians. And actually, interestingly, initially, you see the West encouraging this. Because in the West perspective, they thought actually, you know, the idea of the Turks in particular, a kind of secular, uh, you know, Islamic country coming in, helping these countries, you know, develop and pull themselves towards modernity wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, the big concern at the time was that you'd see some of the trouble in Afghanistan in particular, the sort of radical Islamists that you were seeing taking control, possibly filter into the region and cause problems there. Um, and so, you know, the West encouraged it. But of course, Turkey in 91 had a big economic crisis, <laughs> which meant these sort of big Turkish dreams kind of went for naught. Uh, lots of big ambition, but never sort of realized itself. Um, the Iranians, same story. You know, the Iran the Iran's ultimately not uh, a very wealthy country. They did some efforts in, in Tajikistan and built some infrastructure there, infrastructure which is actually pretty dangerous. I've used some of it. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, they did try. And the other one was, of course, China. You know, but China at the time in the 1990s, of course, we have to remember in 1999, you had Tiananmen Square and all that came after that, the sort of Western ostracization. And so China was sort of coming out of this by the mid-1990s. And actually in 1994, Li Peng, uh, the then premier, did a big tour of the region where he visited all of the capitals except Dushanbe as part of an effort to open up the West, uh, as they said at the time. And the interesting thing about that visit was the two big themes that we see China talking about on that visit, or Li Peng in particular. One was concerns about 
dissident Uyghurs. Um, as I said before, you had kind of communities from all of the different countries that lived across the borders. And similarly, while the majority of Uyghurs live in Xinjiang in China, um, about 10 million of them, there are hundreds of thousands living in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan in particular. And at the time, there was quite large dissident communities that lived in Kazakhstan who were actually trying to agitate for change and help to their communities who lived in China. And so it was a big feature of Chinese concerns at the time that they would sort of break this link in some way. And so he was actively lobbying at the time for these leaders to crack down on these distant groups. But the other big thing that he talks about a lot during his visit is the development of new Silk Roads. And I'd argue the narrative that we see today around the Belt and Road was kind of born at this time, you know, because he was really talking about it a lot. The other thing that was born at this time was the creation of the Shanghai Five. And the Shanghai Five was an organization that was created by China um, to help develop its relations with these new countries. You know, for China, the end of the Soviet Union meant suddenly it had five new neighbors, or four new neighbors, sorry. Um, you know, Russian, the Russian Federation, um, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And so the idea of the Shanghai Five grouping was to try to define these borders that they shared with these countries, to try to establish some sort of relationship with these countries, and to try to demilitarize a bit, because ultimately these borders are very remote, but they were ones that all these countries were quite concerned about. So this was a creation the Chinese concocted at the time, the Shanghai Five grouping, uh, which later we'll see develops into the, um, into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but at the time was really about trying to you know, establish uh, relations between China and these countries. And this kind of takes us through the 1990s. It was a period of great turmoil in some ways for the region. And towards the end of the 1990s, what you start to see happening is a growing level of violence, uh, terrorist violence in particular, a lot of it with links to Afghanistan showing up in the Central Asian countries. Um, in, I think it was 1998, 1999, and 2000, you had large-scale invasions in some ways from Afghanistan of militant groups linked to the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan into southern Kyrgyzstan and into parts of Tajikistan, from groups that were left over from the Tajik civil war, you know, continue to have all their weapons and would launch attacks around the region. In 1999 in February, there were some bombings in downtown Tashkent in Uzbekistan, um, which were linked to, it's not entirely clear, frankly, because the government there was very secretive about what happened, but it wouldn't be surprising if it was the Islamic movement to Uzbekistan. And then in China in 1997, you had some very big protests Riots, it's very difficult to know exactly what's happening in Xinjiang at the time. Um, but anyway, we do know that many people were killed, and at the root of it seemed to be some sort of an uprising locally. The Chinese, of course, blamed it on people linked to Afghanistan. Evidence very difficult to find, so we don't really know. But suffice to say, there was a lot of violence uh, in this region at the time. And so, when in 2001, in June, uh, the Shanghai Five grouping, and you can see there the five leaders of the Shanghai Five grouping uh, gathering together, we have uh, Rahmon of uh, Tajikistan, who is actually still in power now, Boris Yeltsin of Russia, Jiang Zemin of China, uh, Nursultan Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan, and Askarakayev of Kyrgyzstan. Um, these five men, the Shanghai Five grouping, um, had been so successful that they decided to expand it. And so they invited Uzbekistan into the party. Uzbekistan, of course, hadn't been relevant to this discussion until then, because they didn't share a border with China. So the kind of overriding logic and participation wasn't there. But in 2001, they decided to expand it and create the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And in June 2001, they had their big kind of, you know, coming out party and announcing this is, you know, who we are and what we're doing. And the interesting thing is, you look at the SCO, and the SCO is kind of the one thing that all of these countries could agree on, and they couldn't really agree on much, frankly, was the fact that they didn't like terrorists. And so you see the SCO as an organization initially is very focused on counterterrorism questions. And this becomes a big focus of discussion. 
So it's kind of relevant that then at the end of the year, in September, we of course have the September 11 attacks emanating from Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda being based there, which suddenly kind of brought it all home to base, you know? And so something that this region had been worrying about a lot suddenly came into crystal focus and became a huge focus for the world and the United States in particular. And of course, I need to go into the history of what happened subsequently in Afghanistan, the American-led uh, war on terrorism. But I think the interesting thing to think about is that the region, which until then had really not been a US priority in particular, throughout the 1990s, we can see the United States did expend some effort in Central Asia. We see you know, leaders, Al Gore, uh, visiting, um, uh, the vice president before him, who's never now forgetting, um, they did visit the region and there was an effort by the United States, but it really wasn't a very focused effort. Post 9-11, it becomes a focused effort. And the whole discussion of the region really starts to hinge instead around uh, Afghanistan and focused on counterterrorism concerns uh, towards the region. What's interesting about the SCO is that actually the SCO kind of doesn't really know how to respond to events in Afghanistan. In part because while the organization should logically come together and then deal with this problem together. Instead, what they end up doing is each of them forges different relationships with the United States. Um, and in a way, the organization kind of fragments. And so we start to see a kind of atrophy immediately set in, uh, which later sort of gets picked up. But at the time, it kind of stops the organization somewhere developing. And I know a lot of Chinese academics in particular point to the fact that the attacks on 9-11 and the subsequent response by the West in Afghanistan you know, it was kind of the first failure for the SEO because the SEO didn't come together to respond to this. Instead, they all went off their own way with the Americans, mostly, frankly, trying to see what they could get out of it in their relationship bilaterally with the United States, worrying that if they did it through the SEO, somebody else might benefit. And so really, you know, for the region, what's happening in Afghanistan becomes the really dominant part of the discussion of their engagement uh, for uh, their engagement with the world and actually uh, for themselves for the next few years. Economic engagement, of course, continues across the region. A lot of the stories around, you know, uh, trying to exploit their natural resources, trying to push them out to the world becomes something they're all very keen to do. Um, but, you know, it's, it's complicated by the fact that you've got a big war now raging in Afghanistan. And I think the next big marking point I would point to is 2005. And 2005 is relevant uh, uh, for this region, um, in particular for what we see happening here. And this is uh, uh, downtown Bishkek. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been to Bishkek, but this is the big Alamatu Square um, in the center, where in 2005 we had big protests that were described as the Tulip Revolution. Now, the Tulip Revolution came in the wake of the Rose Revolution we had in Georgia and the Orange Revolution, you'll remember, in Ukraine, um, which were very much the start of these color revolutions that I'm sure you all remember from reading your history books. And remember, some of you look at the age, probably actually remember these things happening. I know I do. Um, you know, these uh, were when we saw this sort of wave of democratization sweep through the former Soviet Union. And this wave was something that really, you know, the Central Asians looked at with trepidation. As I say, with the exception of Kyrgyzstan, you had the people in power were exactly the same people who had been in power at the end of the Soviet Union. And what we saw happening in Georgia, what we saw happening in Ukraine, was those very same governments who were also the same governments that had pretty much been in power since the end of the Soviet Union, and were in fact linked to the Soviet Union before that, suddenly get defenestrated by these large dramatic protests, public protests. And so when they see this happening in 2005 in, in Bishkek, a sort of shudder goes through the region. They start to worry, is this going to start happening to us? And in Kyrgyzstan, in a way, it wasn't that surprising, actually, because Kyrgyzstan had sort of struck away a different path to the other four. What we see happening in Kyrgyzstan throughout is basically a push towards democratization, towards elections, 
towards trying to push towards a greater sort of sense of moving towards a Western democratic norm. Whereas in the other four countries, frankly, they pretty unapologetically said, we're going to continue on pretty much as before, but, you know, we'll add the declaration and discussion of narratives of, you know, of democracy, but really we're going to sort of continue on as, as we were earlier. And so the fear was that what was happening there would sort of contagiously spread across the region. And in fact, we start to see in Uzbekistan here, and this is the second picture you can see, uh, which is a picture from Andijan in the Fergana Valley in Uzbekistan, where the government there, very fearing, you know, of what they just see happening in Kyrgyzstan spreading to their country, sort of went on a crackdown and started arresting a lot of people. And in, uh, in Andijan, they arrested about 25, I think, local uh, businessmen who they accused of being uh, Islamist militants. Um, it's not clear if they were, frankly, it's pretty unlikely. Um, it's possible one or two of them may have been linked to Hizbut Tahrir. Um, but, you know, they certainly weren't, you know, violent militants linked to uh, Afghanistan. Um, this led to a big public protest. The government responded to this public protest, frankly, by shooting people down. Now, we don't know how many people were killed. The suspicion is in the low hundreds, but we really don't know uh, what exactly happened. But we do know that this sort of series of events took place. Um, and as a result of this event, um, following the kind of Tudor revolution and all the optimism that was in the air about democratization spreading through uh, the former Soviet space, we see the West really kind of lean into this engagement and say, you know, this is great, we should encourage this. But after we see this crackdown in Uzbekistan, we see um, the Uzbeks react very badly to the criticism that they got from the West and the country really starts to close in on itself and really starts to try to push out um, a lot of the region. And it really sort of transforms how the region is engaging. To be honest, I don't think the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan was the same kind of thing that we saw in Ukraine and Georgia. In fact, it was probably more likely to be the sort of, you know, Kyrgyzstan is a country that is in some ways divided between the North and the South. And the South, which has large Uzbek populations, a lot of which actually have now left, um, they, they've got sort of large tribes and controlling economic interests, um, large groups that sort of control the country. And the protests in 2005 were probably more of a clash between those two groups than they were a kind of sweeping wave of democratization. It's probably, there was some element of the, the public complaining against the government, but there's also some elements of sort of longstanding clashes going forwards. And frankly, what we see happening over, you know, it's happened, it happened subsequently pretty much every 10 years. In 2010, there was an election which turned into large-scale protests in 2015. There was also an election that turned into large-scale protests. This does seem to be the form in Kyrgyzstan, where every sort of five years you have uh, this kind of uh, uh, trouble breaking out. And it's often linked to these sorts of different groups and controlling interests in the country. So there is something slightly different. I think to group the Tudor revolution in those other ones is probably not quite correct. In Andijan, I think we really did see a sort of indigenous protest that was sort of climbed down on very aggressively. But I think the key thing is that this is a moment that the region uh, you know, starts to really worry. And we see the leaders there really start to worry a lot about the engagement they'd be doing with the West. And it starts to really color what they've done. From a Western perspective, there still is an important appetite to engage with the region because the region is still very critical in terms of Afghanistan. But I think the other thing which we really start to uh, starts to change more, and I think there's two important markers that I would I would indicate here and here, you know, this, if you want to read more about this particular aspect, I would recommend looking at my uh, recently published book, which covers a lot of this in grinding detail, uh, based on lots of travel on the ground. Um, I think the two things I would point to in terms of China's engagement in the region, which I think really starts to ascend, one is here, protests that we see erupting in July 2009 in Urumqi, in, in Xinjiang, where we have communities, uh, uh, the Uyghur community starts to clash against the Han uh, majority, increasing majority community in Urumqi, uh, leading to large public disorder, hundreds of people killed in you know, really quite brutal ways. I mean, the protests were not 
you know, sort of people marching up and down protesting. There were people beating each other to death with, you know, pieces of metal and wood. You know, and this was done on the basis of ethnicity. So it was really pretty brutal. First, it was the Uyghurs were attacking the Han. The next day, the Han had a counter protest, really kind of brutal stuff. But from a Chinese government perspective, it was a real turning point. Because until this point, you'd kind of seen the government in Beijing essentially, you know, try to exert some control over Xinjiang, but broadly speaking, leave Xinjiang to the control of the regional leader, Wang Lechuan, um, who was actually quite close to then uh, President Hu Jintao. Um, but essentially, he'd been kind of mismanaging in some ways the province to the point that it escalates that the ethnic tensions that existed in this region that have always existed in the region escalate to this sort of large scale violence and protest. And Premier Hu Jin, President Hu Jintao is forced into the very humiliating position of having to leave a G8 summit in L'Aquila, Italy, where he was you know, being fated as you know, the leader of rising China. You know, the 2000s was a moment where everyone thought China was coming out into the world. You know, we had the Chinese economic growth model was a sort of explosive thing. Late 2009, this is really when, you know, one could argue it was at its apex, right? 2009, 10, 11, this was the moment when China was at its kind of great moment of optimism and uh, opening on the world stage. He had to leave this big public summit to scuttle back home to help settle a kind of clash in a distant province. So this really led to a big revisiting of what China was doing in Xinjiang. And we see a big push domestically within China to try to invest in Xinjiang. Now, on the one hand, there's the very heavy security crackdown, which we can still see going on to this day. But on the other hand, there's a very heavy economic push. But, and here I go back to my first point about thinking about Xinjiang in some ways as a sixth or seventh Central Asian country. You know, this region is wonderful and worth visiting as much as you can, but it's landlocked. You know, it's entirely landlocked. A question I'll put out there and I'll see if someone can, can remember it. Uzbekistan is actually one of the world's only two doubled landlocked countries. Oh, thank you very much. Um, well, landlocked and I get water. I should say other things and see if they appear. Um, thank you for that. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's one of the world's only two double landlocked countries, um, but it means that they're very far from the world's waterways and the world's waterways are important for trade. So if you're going to create, you know, manufacturing and development, you're going to open up your economy, you need to something in these waterways or you need to have better infrastructure. And this is what we see happening. see China's investment investment in Xinjiang domestically. see increasing volumes of, of attempts to Open the region up, to open the region up ultimately to Central Asia and beyond, to try to create this sort of, you know, what later becomes, and here's where the second picture is important, where we can see Premier Xi, President Xi Jinping giving the first of two speeches that he gave in 2013, where he talked about the Belt and Road Initiative. Now here, he talked about creation of a Silk Road economic belt. A month later, he went to nearby Jakarta, where he gave a speech in which he talked about the 21st century maritime Silk Road. These two become the Belt and Road. Paradoxically, of course, the road is in the seas, but anyway, um, you know, this really becomes the idea for China is to try to open this region up to develop infrastructure, to open markets, to try to create this sort of idea of connectivity through the region, ultimately to help Xinjiang develop. And so we see this is kind of the narrative of China going forwards for the next few years. It had already actually been the narrative by China for the years before, but I think after the protests and riots in 2009, we see it really be supercharged. Now, Russia continues to have uh, really uh, a strong upper hand. Um, you know, China uh, is the growing influence, I would say, in the region. But I think what's interesting about Russia, of course, is there's still the hard infrastructure which still ties uh, Russia to the region, but also some other softer parts of the infrastructure. So one of the important things to remember, a major economic driver in a lot of the countries, specifically in, in Kyrgyzstan, in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, is migrant labor. So there's a lot of men who work in the who are in these countries, you know, these are countries that are relatively young, um, but there aren't that many jobs for them. 
if there are jobs, they're not very well paid. But because of the CIS and their links to Russia, they all have free visa entry into Russia. They can go live and work there. And so a lot of young men from these countries go and work in Moscow or in some of the Russian cities, where they earn a far better paycheck, which they could then send back home. And, you know, really, you know, remittances, which is, of course, a big thing in this region as well, is a huge thing for Central Asia. If you look at the Tajik or the Kyrgyz, you know, national GDP, estimates place, you know, between a third or a half, some estimates, I think that's a bit exaggerated, frankly, of their GDP is based on remittances, you know? So these are not insubstantial amounts of money, which means that there's always a very strong connection that Russia still has with the region because, you know, the reason they go to Russia is because they have easy entry into the country and they speak Russian or enough Russian to be able to get by. You know, not many of the manual laborers can speak much Mandarin. So, you know, China's not really an opportunity in this case. And also there's a lot of labor in China as well. So it's a different relationship there. So this means that China is the ascendant power there, but it's one where Russia still has a very tight control or tight link to the region. Now to move on to my next slide to now think a bit more against about the region, is as you get to the 2010s, the big question that we start to see in the region is the question of transition. Now, you know, up until 2006, um, you'd had the same people in power, uh, you know, except for in Kyrgyzstan, where as I say, they'd had sort of periodic changes at various moments, that had been in power when the Soviet Union had fallen apart. And the four leaders we, in question are, on the top here, we have uh, President uh, Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan. Here we have President Rahman of Tajikistan. Here President Karim of Uzbekistan. And here we have uh, Saparat Niyazov of Turkmenistan, who is also known as the Turkmenbashi, the father of the Turkmen people. He, he's the one you've probably heard uh, most about. He had built golden statues to himself in the capital city that would sort of turn to follow the sun. Um, and there's a lot of other very odd things he renamed. Uh, the days of, uh, he renamed the week, the months of the year after his family. Um, he wrote a book called the Ruchnama, which is his musings on everything, uh, mathematics, religion, science. And this book, this pink book, um, became the basis of the curriculum for the entire country. And this was taught to the country for a good 10 years. So there is a big problem with education in, in Turkmenistan, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, he passed away uh, in 2006. He was the first to die. And he died, and the reason I put his successor here and not any of the others is in part because, you know, Gurbanguly Budi Muhammadimov, who took over after him, who's actually now handed over power this year to his son, um, Sirdar, uh, it, you know, he was the health minister. It was very unclear why the health minister suddenly took over. And one of the rumors is uh, they were related. And if you see the two pictures next to each other, you can see some sort of a similarity, uh, but it's all very opaque and unclear. But anyway, you know, uh, Turkmenbashi ruled a very, very close country, uh, one that was very isolated from the world. Uh, he didn't actually engage in any of those Russian structures. He stayed an observer in all of them. Um, and he used to, you know, but because he was sitting on the world's fourth, well, at some moments it was described as the third largest gas reserves, frankly, he had options that that gave him, which allowed him to kind of uh, continue to rule his country in this way. So the transition that happened from him to Burdi Mohamedovo was actually very smooth. One day, you know, uh, Turkmenbashi was in charge. Suddenly he died. No one knew he died. It was this weird moment where everyone said, where's he gone? And actually <laughs> the reporting at the time was, oh, he's fine. No, he's absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with him. Uh, and then they said, no, this guy's now in power and he's dead. And no one kind of knew uh, what happened, but the country was so closed, it was easy to do that. But in the 2010s, you know, the other countries start to look, well, how are we going to transit? You know, these are men who realize that they're getting older. How are they going to hand over power? But they created power structures around them that were so tied to them. And in some cases, frankly, they're very corrupt families that it made it very hard to sort of pass power on to someone else. And so they would sort of look around their families. Now, 
what we saw happen was the first one uh, after um, Tukmanbashi passed away in 2006, the next one died in 2016 when Karimov passed away. Islam Karimov, Uzbekistan, died. And his moment was a very uh, worrying moment because Uzbekistan has always kind of been seen as the heart of the region. It's got the biggest population, 30 million. Uh, it's much more densely populated. Um, you've got big cities. You've got an economy that can kind of sustain itself. The other countries, it'd be difficult for them to kind of be self-sustaining because of the nature of their kind of structures, but Uzbekistan actually could. Uzbekistan also has unfortunately had a lot of people go off and join militant groups and has got the Fergana Valley, which has been, or a big chunk of the Fergana Valley, which has been the source of a lot of kind of concern and instability. And so when Karimov died, the fear was there would be violence and instability, and actually there wasn't. There was a pretty clean transition to a man who had been within his power and is actually still in power today, President Shavkat Mirziyoyev. And this very smooth, you know, ascension to power, uh, change led to a really interesting shift in Uzbekistan, which has really been transformational for the region, in the sense that Uzbekistan had been very closed under Karimov. It had engaged with the world, but it had done it in a very careful and judicious way, and had actually at various moments disengaged from some of the Russian structures, and had always been very hesitant about moving things forward. Anyway, when Mirziyoyev comes to power, he transforms all of this. He gets rid of a lot of the old uh, uh, group, uh, frankly, well, actually, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of Karimov's family who had been controlling large parts of the economy in, in very corrupt ways. His daughter, in particular, Gulnara, is very infamous for this. Um, she's a yeah, she's got a very bad a reputation uh, around the region. She's still sitting in, in jail, actually, in Uzbekistan at the moment. They're trying to repatriate hundreds of millions of pounds of dollars that she'd stashed away around the world. Um, Mirziyoyev tries to open the country up and tries to push it in a sort of opening direction. This has a really transformational effect across the region because Uzbekistan's kind of important place at the heart of the region means that when the country there is so closed off, it makes it very difficult for people to engage with it. And now suddenly um, they can in a much more uh, kind of open way. But watching this uh, smooth transition um, then leaves you know, the other two, Nazarbayev and Rahman. How are we going to handle these accessions? Now, Kazakhstan had always been a more open country. Um, and so what we see happen with, uh, with Nazarbayev is in 2019, he hands power over to his prime, uh, to the head of the Senate, um, who, or prime minister, I can't remember which role he held at the time, to be honest. Um, but he hands over power to uh, Mr. Uh, um, uh, uh, Mr. Tokayev, who, who takes over um, as president. And it's quite a smooth transition. And in 2019, it appeared to be a fairly successful one, but we'll see, as we'll see in the next slide, actually a couple of years later turned out some problems. And so we see that this shift starts to happen. And actually this shift seems to happen in a relatively smooth way, which surprises everyone. And now the only leader left standing from those early times is Rahman, who at the moment, the narrative seems to be, is trying to shape his son into the coming uh, leader. Um, but it's happening in a very sort of gentle and awkward way, and it's not clear exactly um, when it's actually going to, the handover is actually going to happen. It could, to be honest, happen this year. You know, it's really at that moment, they're at a very febrile moment in Tajikistan at the moment, trying to establish what is actually going to happen, trying to happen. But as these transitions happen, the sense was actually that maybe this region will continue to be stable and will continue to see the relative stability we've had preponderate on. Unfortunately, that has not been the case. And here I will probably gallop a little bit through this slide because I do want to leave some time for questions. I think I'm getting towards the end of the time that you wanted me to babble on about, and I can babble on a lot about this region. So, um, uh, you know, I think the big turning points I would look at today are really, I think, the interesting recent markers in some ways, the takeover of Kabul by the Taliban, which I think really, uh, again, sent a wave of concern through the region. 
because they all started to worry. Afghanistan was always a concern of theirs. When the United States was there, you had someone in power in, you know, there that they could kind of engage with, and also you had the United States providing security guarantees, which they liked. The security guarantee is now gone. And so now what you're seeing is the country is trying to figure out how do they develop their own relationships with the Taliban. And actually, the majority, the exception is the Tajiks, have decided to engage a lot with the Taliban because they think that by engaging, they'll keep the Taliban stable in power, and maybe the Taliban will help protect their interests and their concerns. It's not clear to me, actually, the Taliban have the capability to do that, and we can discuss more if people uh, want to discuss that. Um, but the other marker is that we've seen a lot of instability across the regions in this period. Here, earlier this year, uh, well, actually, maybe I'll start with this picture here, which is from Kazakhstan, where we saw in January of this year, large-scale instability break out. Now, the trigger for this was a fuel price hike at the beginning of the year. The government in Kazakhstan had been subsidizing fuel prices for a very long time, finally decided they need to reform this to continue reforming the country and opening it up a bit more. And so they said, cut these subsidies. Of course, they did this after the region had just been beaten quite badly by COVID. This region suffered economically quite badly because of COVID, because a lot of the trade that you saw happening actually happens with China. Um, and of course, the Chinese borders are very closed for a very long period of time during COVID, and actually only just recently starting to open up now. So you had a region which suffered economically, suddenly had a fuel, fuel price hike, mass protests break out. These protests, though, then seem to have been taken over by a political clash left over from the Nazarbayev transition, which then seems to have broken out into this large-scale violence, which racked the country and I think really shocked everybody because no one thought Kazakhstan was that unstable. Then earlier this year, we see when the government in, in Uzbekistan decided to push through a constitutional change, the autonomous region of Karolkalpakstan, Karol, sorry, it's a very long name, which I'm mispronouncing, uh, which is an autonomous region within Kazakhstan, I mean, autonomous region. It's it's much like, you know, Xinjiang or Tibet in China, where these named these places are called autonomous regions and have a certain sort of governance of themselves, but actually are still very much centrally controlled by the capital. Anyway, the constitutional reform was to change that autonomous nature of uh, Karl Pakistan. Um, and this led to large protests. And there we can see in downtown Nukus, the capital of Karl Pakistan, we see big protests breaking up. And then here, and here I put up a map of, of Tajikistan, we can see uh, violence has broken out between the Kazakhs and the Tajiks shooting across each other's borders. Now, the root of this trouble, and here I'm going to try to use the pointer, I don't know if you can see, but this part of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, you know, this is all, uh, you know, broadly, uh, this part here is kind of Fergana Valley, but here, you can see here, there's little areas that are actually parts of Tajikistan, right, exclaves. So you've got areas that are essentially entirely engulfed by Kyrgyzstan, but actually Tajikistan. And there's lots of these exclaves buried around there. And they're, naturally, these borders are very ropey, getting across them very complicated. The infrastructure is very weak. There is all sorts of smuggling, frankly, which happens there. And this has led to regular clashes. And that's what we've seen happen now. Frankly, the, the last round started last year in April, and then we've seen it break out again this year. But you know, hundreds of people are dying. So there's not insubstantial clashes between the military of these countries. And you know this has been going on. The other problem which has been happening in, 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 in Tajikistan is the Gorno-Badakhshan. Now, if you think back to the civil war I was talking about during the 1990s, it was really broadly a story of a clash between the communities here and the communities here, right? The communities here wanted to break away and be independent. The communities here didn't want to let them go. And so we see you know, keeping the country together has always been a big challenge for Tajikistan. And now, if you go to Tajikistan, you need to get special permissions to go to this part of the country. But what we saw happen in November of 2021 um, was 
uh, or is it actually 2020, sorry, forgive me, um, was we saw some protests in the region escalate up and the government crack down on it. And so in Tajikistan, you basically got a conflict happening in two parts of the country, one on their border with Kyrgyzstan and the other within Gorno-Badakhshan, where the government is at the moment cracking down. And so we're seeing a kind of a growth of violence and instability across this region. Problems in some ways that were left over from, you know, the end of the USSR, which maybe have been kept stable for because of the government's power, it's very difficult to tell. But now we can see them really taking off again. I think it's why one of the main reasons I think that there should be uh, more attention um, on the region. Um, and so I think that brings us kind of up to date where we are today. Now, there are a few other things I could go on about. Ukraine would be one, and I can maybe come to that in Russia, um, but I will stop there, conscious of time, and let Alessandro steer the questions. Thank you very much, Raffaello. Now we are opening the floor here to the audience. If you have a question, you can just raise your hand and you will be handed a microphone, while on Zoom, you just send to MEI chat and I will read your question. I just used the prerogative as a moderator to start. I mean, congratulate again for your presentation. It was very informative. You answered a lot of questions on Central Asia, but unfortunately with the last PowerPoint, you raised a ton of new questions on the subject. Is Central Asia in the coming year going to be a tinderbox? Mm -hmm. So having said that, uh, let's address the elephant in the room, Russia invasion of Ukraine. In uh, two months, uh, basically, we saw two different Russia, especially in Central Asia. Uh, as you mentioned, in January, uh, Kazakhstan was on fire. President uh, Tokayev asked the help of the CSTO, and the, for the first time, it didn't happen in Kyrgyzstan, it didn't happen in Osh in 2011, but it happened in January this year. CSTO in 48 hours airlifted 3,000 soldiers with tanks and basically quelled any problem in Kazakhstan. One month and something later, invasion of Ukraine, different Russia. Is there, let's say, an opening, an entrance for China? or still Russia is considering and able to assert its power on Kazakhstan as his own backyard? Thank you for that question. I'd actually included a picture on that last slide, which is of Ukraine, because I thought I'd get to that, but I saw the clock was ticking away, so I thought I'd leave it and let someone else talk for a minute. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a really interesting question. I think, you know, Ukraine has been, I think, transformative. So I was actually in Central Asia a week ago. I went to Tashkent and I went to Bishkek. And uh, one of the interesting things uh, some interlocutors in, in Uzbekistan in particular were talking about was they said that pre uh, the Russian invasion in February, they thought Russian influence in the region was at something of an apex. Um, and they said this because if you look at um, the, um, the CSTO deployment that you saw happen in Kazakhstan, and the way the CSTO deployed as well was interesting. I think the one thing I would say about the CSTO's deployment was, I don't, you know, they didn't actually do any shooting. They showed up and essentially were... Uh, uh, they went to defend like infrastructure, like the airports and so on and so forth, because, and, and what that did was that freed up Kazakh soldiers to then go and actually quell the violence. So that was kind of the purpose that they served. So it wasn't kind of an invading force that I think some people characterize that at. It really was intended as a defensive force. And the interesting thing was that the Russians deployed and then they left. It was a very kind of clean entry and exit. And at the time, you remember Secretary Blinken of the state said, you know, be careful when you invite the Russians and you can never get rid of them. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, uh, it, they did kind of leave. And I think, you know, the Russians didn't have a reason to stick around in some ways. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting, which Central Asians pointed out to me, is they said that shortly towards the end of last year, I think it was, um, the president of Turkmenistan sent his son, Sardar, to Moscow on a visit. And the sense always was that this was Sardar going to kind of get 
the approval of Mr. Putin. You know, and if you ever wanted a better demonstration of, you know, influence and power, what happens? You send the princeling who's going to ascend to power to meet, you know, the great emperor who will say yes or no to his thing. You know. uh, we've seen uh, President Rahman at Tajikistan has been doing this a lot as well. He, he got, he, I think he's been getting Hassan Rustam to try to meet with Putin. Um, it's not clear Putin likes him for one reason or another, but anyway. Um, there, so there's a clear sense that, you know, Russia was at something of an apex of influence. And after the war, the invasion of Ukraine, I think we've seen a real drop. Now, at a public level, the invasion of Ukraine is broadly pretty badly seen in the region. You know, it's very unpopular. There's a lot of public sympathy towards the Ukrainians. Um, there is also some sympathy, frankly, towards the Russian narratives. Um, and a lot of this is because, frankly, if you turn on the TV in Central Asia, you get a lot of Russian TV. Um, and you get a lot of Russian sort of disinformation, which kind of is pushed out there. Um, and so there's a lot of that which which does resonate amongst some people. And there's some who, frankly, still harken back to the days of a strong Russia, and they kind of like that appeal. But Broadly, I think if you were to do a sort of straw poll, I think you'd find more people pro-Ukraine than you would pro-Russia. And we've seen this express itself even at an official level. You know, the Kazakh government has said a number of times they are unhappy with what the, the, the Russians did. Um, in Kazakhstan, there's a particular concern. You may remember at the beginning of my presentation, I said that in the north of Kazakhstan, you have roughly a fifth of the population living there who are ethnic Russians. And the, Russian, the Chinese, Kazakh fear is always that Russia might, you know, just decide to bite that off. Because the logic you could paint would be identical to the one that you see being used in Ukraine, right? Why does Mr. Putin give a logic for going into Ukraine? He says because there are ethnic Russians there in the Donbass who want to come back to Russia and need defending from you know, these Nazis in, in Kiev. You can make a similar story in Kazakhstan. You, know, you could say, oh, there's these poor ethnic Russians living in the north of Kazakhstan who are being oppressed by the Kazakhs in Astana and Almaty. Um, you know, and, and there has been a push in Kazakhstan over the past few years to try to uh, de-Russify the country. There's, instead of using the Cyrillic language, now they use Latin. Um, you can see a big push in schools to use Kazakh language. It's a real kind of effort in that direction. So you could paint a very similar narrative. And if you look at some of the nationalists in Russia, the loudest nationalists, they do say it sometimes. They say, you know, Kazakhstan is really, isn't really a country. You know, the same sort of stuff they were saying about Ukraine. So there's a lot of concern there about that. But the Kazakhs have been quite pushy back in saying, you know, we don't approve and, and we don't recognize these, uh, the you know, the Donbass as independent countries and now as part of Russia. Um, there are some people in Uzbekistan, senior figures have said similar things, but they've been much more careful about it. And actually in Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, you've seen very little comment in this direction. In Kyrgyzstan, you've seen a little bit as well, but you've seen some public protests as well, frankly, in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan in particular. The other interesting thing I'd point out recently, which has kind of exacerbated this question, uh, was the mobilization order that we saw go out, uh, when was it, a couple of weeks ago now, um, by uh, President Putin, was it led to an exflow of people, <laughs> including large numbers into Central Asia. You know, I was in, as I say, Bishkek in, in Tashkent this past week, and, you know, uh, I booked my hotel in Tashkent like three weeks ago, right? So the week before the mobilization was announced. And, you know, I had to pick a hotel. I looked on, you know, Expedia or whatever website, and, you know, I could look here, I could look there. there was lots of room. Yeah, I booked my hotel, no problems. Anyway, when I get there, it's all booked up. There's literally people sleeping in the lobbies because there's all these Russians who fled. You know, when I got to the airports, the flights from Moscow are completely full. And the demographic of the flight was quite telling. You know, it was 80, 90% young men. <laughs> you know, so it was a real clear expert. And all, all the Central Asians I would meet would sort of say, oh my God, there's all these Russians suddenly arriving. They're not very popular. Uh, it, it's a real, there's a real kind of tension that you can see uh, emerging there. And it, it's, you know, it, it ties into kind of, 
the bigger problems around Ukraine, uh, and also into the kind of historical relationships where Moscow's always kind of treated this region as, you know, the kind of little brothers we need to look out for. So there is a clear change. You know, there is a pattern that shifted here from Russia being seen as the kind of benign supportive power that actually does bring supportive, you know, has a strong economic link. And also in the case of what we saw happen in Kazakhstan helps, you know, create security um, to the opposite where Russia seems a great destabilizer. And they really worry about Russian security guarantees being followed through on, you know, we haven't seen Russia do anything or try to do anything about any of the problems that I described going on um, this year. There is a, a Russian base in Tajikistan on their border with Afghanistan, which actually has now been depleted to send those forces over to fight in Ukraine. So that base was always seen as quite important because it was kind of a, you know, a breakwater in some ways to defend Tajikistan against, um, against Afghanistan and chaos from there. So there's a real kind of material shift. The question is Russia's Chinese entry. Um, you know, I think that's an open question. I don't, frankly, uh, uh, I haven't seen it happening yet. I think the big SCO summit we saw this year, uh, which was interesting, the one indicator I'd point to there, if you want a, a silly anecdote, was, um, you know, President Xi, I'm sure you all know because you read the newspapers regularly, uh, did his first out of China visit uh, after COVID in in, in uh, uh, last month, where he went first to Kazakhstan and then to Uzbekistan for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. Um, and what's interesting is uh, both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, you know, the leaders gave him a big shiny medal, the Order of Friendship of Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan. But actually, no, the Kazakh one is called the Order of the Golden Eagle. Uh, you know, it's kind of the highest honor that the country can give a sort of, you know, visiting dignitary. And, you know, they fated him, and this was clearly, you know, great China, come to us, we want to engage with you, do more with you. Uh, and he went to the SEO summit, where it was very much China, you know, will engage with the region, and we, we want you there. President Putin came to the SEO summit and gave President Mitsuyev a medal. He didn't get one in return, by the way, you know. So if you want an anecdote of, you know, how the kind of influence game is shifting there, you can see the region is really trying to encourage and wants kind of Chinese engagement. But China's actually quite hesitant, because China's got a lot of other concerns. Um, you know, the region is very important for China because of Xinjiang, as I described before. But, you know, Beijing, and this is a whole different discussion and presentation, which frankly, other Sunday can already do better than me. Um, you know, Beijing has really one major foreign policy concern, and that is the evil United States. And that's kind of priority number one. And Central Asia is important, but it's kind of a lesser priority. And so I think the region is going to have this issue going forwards, which is, you know, Russia is a less predictable power and one they want in some ways to have less to do with, but still will have to because of the kind of links that still continue to exist. China is the one that they'd like to encourage more in a sort of positive direction, but they struggle in some ways to keep Beijing's attention and also for Beijing to engage in ways that they want. You know, because the other issue is, of course, Beijing has its interests in the region, which aren't the same necessarily as the region's. It's a very long answer, short question, sorry. No, I mean, say so that uh, it's very important because um, the relationship with Russia for different countries in Central Asia has also been kind of brickmanship, even for the father of the nation, who were from a Soviet heritage. I remember when I was living in Almaty, was a time when Putin said that uh, he was expressing gratitude to President Nazarbayev as a father of the nation, yeah. but don't forget that he was the first. And then it's not necessary that after when he was in power, Russia was not going to be able. And Medvedev, when he was after in power, he just mentioned that Kazakhstan was not a country. Yeah. So that was quite an issue just at the time, not even saying now. But I have already several questions from our audience. And the first one is for my colleague, Ambassador Buskin. To what extent can Turkey counterbalance Russia in Central Asia? Um, I mean, I get asked this question a lot. <laughs> 
because people say, oh, Turkey people's Turkey, they must all be the same. They love it. They all want to, you know, Turkey could jump in and do something there. Well, Turkey would like to, but I've seen, you know, a little evidence of them always having the capability to do it, frankly speaking. So as I said, in the 1990s, there was a push uh, by the leader then, uh, Turgut Uzul, to really push into the region and create this kind of, there is a Turkic, um, I forget what it's called now, the Turkic Union or something. Um, I'm waiting for someone in the audience to tell me the correct one, but no one is, which is unfortunate. Um, Anyway, this organization should bring together all the peoples of the Turkey countries, and of course includes four of the Central Asians, and it's always seen as kind of very potential and important, but to be honest, in terms of material impact, I've seen limited amounts. Turkish contractors, uh, Turkish businessmen do, you know, pretty brisk trade in the region. Um, it used to be if you went to the markets, I remember when I first started going in 20, early 2010s, you know, you went to the markets and actually the good products were the Turkish ones, the not so good ones were the Chinese ones. Actually, that's changed now. It's really changed. You can see the quality of the Chinese products has increased, you know, substantially to the point where they're really competitive with the Turkish ones. Turkish contractors are quite present in the region. If you go to Ashgabat, which I would encourage everyone to try to do, though it's very difficult, um, you will see a city built of white marble, beautiful white marble, you know, all these big white marble buildings, um, because that's what the leader likes. And it's, you know, Italian marble as well, so it's not cheap. Um, but the contractor that's done almost all of this, well, there's two actually. There's a French contractor that's done a lot, uh, Bouij, and the other one is a Turkish company, um, uh, Maj. Oh gosh, I forgot the name, Muglik or something. Anyway, they win a lot of contracts there, and the Turks have a visa-free policy with the Turkmen, and so you've got large numbers of Turkmen that live in Turkey that do kind of shuffle trade between the two. So there is a lot of Turkish links to the region, um, but it's just not quite the same. And I think Turkey doesn't have the kind of economic firepower to really push into the region in the same way. They do have influence. It used to be there was a lot of Fethullah Gulen schools that used to be very present in the region. Um, but Fethullah uh, you know, Gulen fell out with the one, they've all been shut down and most have been sort of thrown out or, or closed down, which is unfortunate because actually they were a major driver of kind of Turkish cultural impact in the region. They were essentially, you know, didactic institutions, you know, they were teaching people languages and, 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 and useful things, uh, and they were all closed down And the Turks. I don't think it replaced them all, frankly. Um, so there's, there's kind of there. So, you know, Turkey has a lot of, you know, let's say links, it could push up and develop, but I've never quite seen them have the capability to actually do it, nor have I seen them have the focused attention to do it. You know, I see a lot more focus by President Erdogan in other parts of the world than I do in Central Asia. Let me address the second elephant in the room that is Afghanistan. It's a very crowded room, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> Central Asia. Yeah, exactly. Having said that, uh, now in your PowerPoint, you were talking about the Taliban uh, and then in 2001. Fast forward to last year, August 15, mm. Taliban 2.0, Islamic uh, Emirate of Afghanistan. Now, US is no more in the picture. Uh, there is no need to use uh, Central Asia as a transit area for, for weapon or for weapon exfiltration. Uh, looking for one of your specialities, this is counterterrorism. Mm. Is now the crosshair in Afghanistan and the terrorist organization in Central Asia shifting from the first able, it was the United States, to a second one, which is China, and that was not on the crosshair before? Um. That's a, look, it's really interesting. I think um, it's difficult to tell. <laughs> it's difficult to tell because, you know, I think that um, what we have seen happen since the Taliban take over Afghanistan is we have seen the rise of the Islamic State. Well, it was already present, the Islamic State. It arrived what, in 2015, 14, 15, which was an offshoot of 
the Tehrik Taliban Pakistan and then developed into ISKP, Islamic State of Khorasan Province, uh, which, you know, became ISIS presence kind of on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, when the Taliban took over, what, you know, the big question everyone raised and does seem to become reality is who would the opposition to the Taliban be, right? And the most coherent one which seems to have come together is ISKP, right? Um, there's even stories of some of the former special forces of uh, the, the the former republic going and joining them because, of course, the Taliban were hunting and killing them. Um, the kind of national resistance front hasn't quite materialized as a substantial opposition to the Taliban, but ISK has. And ISKP is interesting because why do I take a, a start talking about this is because what ISKP has been doing in the past few months is talking increasingly about, well, actually, it's been doing it since late last year, really, um, targeting uh, Central Asia and targeting China. If you look at the material that they published, it took a lot about China, the enemy, and China, the enemy, because they're supporting the Taliban, but also China, you know, the enemy in general, because of what they're doing to Uyghurs and so on and so forth. Um, and similarly, you can see them talking about the Central Asian countries as well. Now, what's curious is that this hasn't resulted in many attacks against their interests. So it's not clear what that actually means um, for ISK in particular. But it certainly is worrying, and it's something that when I, I found a lot of people in Central Asia thinking a lot about, what does it mean that we've now got this problem? Actually, the interesting thing about terrorism in Central Asia at the moment is you see far more terrorism linked to the region outside of the region than you see in the region. So there are large groups of Central Asians still fighting in Syria, living in Idlib, fighting alongside Hayat Tafir al-Sham and, and the groups that, in that part of, of Syria that's left. Uh, some even fighting with the Islamic State there. Um, we've seen terrorist attacks linked to Central Asians in Europe, uh, in the United States even, um, and in Russia, uh, of course, in large numbers. But a lot of the radicalization that seems to happen seems to be of the Central Asian labor migrant community that's in Russia, um, who have a pretty miserable experience there, and you know some of them are attracted to extremist ideas. So it's interesting, because you've got a terrorist problem in the region, which is it does exist, but it seems to be outside the region other than within the region, not necessarily threatening it, which is kind of curious. Um, the problems we see in the region are much more the ones that I showed in that last slide, which is much more about kind of internal dynamics that are kind of playing out against a, a backdrop of violence. Um, so that is varying away from the China side. The China side, I would say, the interesting question there is that while ISK in particular has been talking more about China and talked about targeting China, it hasn't done it yet. But what we have seen is in Pakistan, a growing level of terrorist violence targeting towards China and not only previously where it was mostly separatists who were doing this, what we've seen recently is actually uh, Islamist groups as well, the Tehrik-i Taliban to Pakistan, uh, potentially with links to some of the Uyghurs. ISK has talked about doing a lot more. And then in Central Asia, what you have seen is a growth in public protest movements um, who are angry at the Chinese, showing up more publicly, more presently in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan in particular. And so China is becoming kind of a bit more of a boogeyman in the region. Um, and I think it's a really interesting development. I think it's one that the Chinese in particular are quite worried about because, you know, the Chinese like to project this image of themselves as very benign, you know. The whole point of the Belt and Road, I was interpreted, was really about, you know, China defining its foreign policy as let's all make money together, you know, which is a pretty good foreign policy to try to sell around the world, right? Who doesn't like to do that? So, you know, but now suddenly that doesn't swing in the same way. You know, now you can see people on the ground don't like China, express anger at China, militant groups talking about attacking China. This is quite worrying, especially when it's happening right in China's backyard. So, yeah, I think China the boogeyman is going to be the big narrative or an interesting narrative to watch out in the yeah. next few years. And especially if we look at the link Afghanistan-Pakistan, when it moved from Khyber Pashtunwala to Dasu mm -hmm. and now to Karachi with mm -hmm. the killing 
of the teacher from the Confucius Institute. Yeah. Now I have another question from the public, uh, and I think it resonates very well with uh, your recent books, Innocent. I don't know if your audience noticed it, but Rafael wrote a book. I did publish a book recently, yes. You might be able to find it on Amazon if you look hard. <laughs> Sir Mackinder or Admiral Maham. Here in Singapore, all the discussion is Indo-Pacific, but from the Middle East to China, Central Asia is still an important variable. Looking at other actors, is the US and the, EU, um, and the European Union losing focus on the great game? So, um, you know, I, I dislike actually great game analogies for this region, um, even though I've been guilty of using them in articles I've written, uh, but I dislike it because it, it removes agency from the region, you know, uh, in the sense that, you know, we talk about this region often as being in between these great powers and, you know, these kind of pawns on a chessboard that are being kind of moved around by others. And I've just done it in my presentation, so I'm, I'm as guilty as others. But, you know, these countries with nations, with people, with agency, and actually they are able to, you know, they do push back. And Turkmenistan, for example, has assiduously maintained its neutrality throughout these years, even though it's received a lot of Russian pressure to kind of come more into, into the Russian field and join these Russian organizations. So, you know, but having said all of that, I would agree 100% with the premise of your question, which is that if we look at the West and we look at the strategies you've seen emanating from, you know, Western capitals over the past few years, it's been all about the Indo-Pacific. You know, and I'm sure you've all been bored to tears by the endless presentations and endless discussions about the Indo-Pacific, which, you know, is basically a veiled way of saying China, right? Um, you know, and so we can see this sort of real push and these developmental strategies, um, which is driven predominantly by the United States, but actually, you know, all the Europeans are kind of chased behind it. And the thing that bothers me is that, you know, I don't see any strategic thinking towards this region. You know, what we see happening in this region, I think, is some really interesting and important geopolitical shifts which are kind of going unobserved in Western capitals. You know, I was in, as I say, Bishkek, Tashkent last week, um, and I met with some of the sort of, you know, Western ambassadors, uh, you know, who I know there, um, who are always happy to sort of chat. And, you know, I can tell talking to them that they struggle to get attention from their capitals, you know? <laughs> they send messages back home saying, oh, this is opportunity, and they can't get traction. And when I talk to the locals, the locals are saying, we would love to not have to choose between China and Russia, you know, or Iran, which is the other one that kind of brackets them. We'd like more Western options, but we don't see the West kind of coming in because there isn't that kind of strategic thinking and push coming in. And so I think it's a huge, frankly, lacuna in uh, Western strategic thinking at the moment. And yeah, the analogy of Mackinder and Mahan is a good one. You know, those of you who don't know Mackinder and Mahan, and of course, I'm sure you all do, they've read their texts repeatedly, right? Um, Alfred Thayer Mahan is a famous strategist, American admiral who talked about naval power and strategy being the kind of defining thing in the world. And Mackinder, Sir Halford Mackinder was a British geographer who talked about the importance of uh, this part of Eurasia that we're talking about as being the geopolitical pivot of the Eurasian landmass. And in his narrative, whoever controlled this area controlled the Eurasian landmass, which therefore meant they controlled the world. So, you know, the, there's two sort of competing strategic uh, historical visions. Um, both very good books I would recommend reading, by the way, if you please. Talking about the... Uh... That question that now is all the focus is in the Pacific is quite interesting because while we are here in Singapore and Central Asia, as you mentioned, landlocked country, double landlocked with Uzbekistan is the second in the world with Luxembourg. Here in Singapore, there is still this some knowledge about Central Asia, but it's quite interesting in reversing the question because Central Asia and especially Kazakhstan 
for a long time has been looking at Singapore as the Singapore model. Uh, President Nazarbayev, for many time in public speech, he was quoting Lee Kuan Yew and to drive Kazakhstan using the Singapore model as a reference. It was quite interesting. And now I think we have uh, a question from my colleague uh, Aziv Suja. He's an expert on Iran. So I think I'm sure the angle will arrive from that area. Thank you so much. Hello. Yes, uh, I have this question in my mind for quite some time, and I think this is the most opportune time to ask this question. Uh, the five uh, countries of Central Asia, uh, Tajikistan, uh, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and uh, Uzbekistan. When I say these five words without error, I think I'm an expert on you know the region. Uh, so it's an actually related to the interface between academics and the state craft, uh, because I see the close society that we see Central Asia. Uh, I have a feeling that uh, because it has not been poked from outside from those powers which uh, we really talk about fire and awe, uh, the Europeans, the Russians who are uh, having more nuanced approach, they understand this region better than the Americans. Uh, is this the reason, as an expert, you see that, uh, you know, why this uh, society is actually closed? Because I see in history, there has been just one attempt by the Americans to poke this society uh, by selling TAPI instead of IPI to India. You know, that was a very brief period of time, which didn't actually work. So that is my first question. Do you agree that this is the case? The second is uh, Sinostan that you are selling. Uh, uh, is it uh, referring to Xinjiang? Okay. <laughs> Uh, is is this that the region that you are referring to? I haven't yet read, read that book. Sinostan, is it referring to Xinjiang region of China? Uh, you know, uh, thank um, you. Thank you. Thank you. To, uh, well, I mean, the second question is very easy to answer, which is Sinostan is a made up word. <laughs> uh, Xinjiang is, you know, uh, is China. And of course, Xinjiang means new frontier in, in, in Mandarin. But Sinostan is kind of an imagined word. And the idea, it, it was really because the point of the book was to try to talk about how Chinese influence was growing in the region. So I just thought it was a catchy way. So it's quite a catchy title, right? You know, it's an appealing one. And that's always, you know, a bookseller once told me you should have a catchy title if you want to try to shift some copies. So Sinusan is a made up word. <laughs> and it's referring to the region in some ways and China's influence in it. And it's just a way of capturing it. On your other question, which I guess is a bit more complicated. I mean, look, I think this region has always been quite closed. In part because of, frankly, geography, which does make it quite remote and distant and sort of hard to engage. I mean, you know, there are there are some people who are interested in it, you know, really interested in it and are obsessed with it like myself. And, you know, but, you know, you have to come across it, right? <laughs> and there are lots of easier places to engage. And also, you know, if we look at it from a kind of pure, uh, you know, Western institutions perspective, you know, what is the actual interest here? You know, what's the importance of these regions in sort of very tangible terms? Well, there's lots of energy there which countries would like. And so Kazakhstan in particular attracts a lot of attention from energy companies because of the opportunities that exist there. But, you know, otherwise they're, you know, quite poor countries, they're remote, they're, how would you kind of engage with them? So that lends itself in a way to closure. The other thing, which is that you had governments in power, which frankly, up until 2006, were the same ones that had been in power since the end of the Soviet Union. So the view of the world was one that was kind of shaped by a Soviet view of the world and control view of the world. So their instinct was always to kind of be closed off and control because that was their way of maintaining power. And after the 2005 trouble that we saw in, in Kyrgyzstan, it kind of reaffirmed to them the importance of that because it said to them, actually, we really do need to stay, keep control. Otherwise, chaos will follow. 
you know, initially the chaos they're worried about was violent Islamists. But then after 2005, they're actually, no, this kind of democracy thing is quite worrying as well. You know, this wave of democratization they saw coming through Georgia, Ukraine, and then Kyrgyzstan. They said, oh my gosh, it's going to pull us down as well. And that, that's kind of terrifying. Um, so they, they've always been quite close in that direction. And that's always kind of been uh, their degree. And to be honest, now, you know, Kazakhstan is much more open, but, you know, you can still see the state has a control. And if you look at the kind of media, there's much more openness there than in the other countries, but there are limits. <laughs> and you can still see there's subjects, which if you veer into, you'll kind of get into trouble. Um, in Kyrgyzstan, it's a very open place, but it has constant sort of internal turmoils and troubles and problems. Um, and also you have quite a strong kind of security apparatus that seem to exist in the background, which seems to be quite linked to Moscow. Tajikistan is going in, a, I hear, is getting a bit more closed off of late. Uh, the issues there do seem to be getting worse and the government does seem to be closing in. It could be because they're trying to get towards transition, um, but it is quite difficult to have sort of open uh, conversations about sensitive subjects there with locals. And then Turkmenistan is a very, very difficult place, frankly, to uh, uh, engage with and has remained that way for some time. You know, why Why this is, you could say it's because they have the habit left over from the USSR. A cynic would say because the controlling interests of the country tend to be directly linked to the leaders, and so it behooves their interests, personal interests, to kind of maintain a tight level of control. Um, you know, uh, others would say other things. Uzbekistan is interesting because I think after President Karimov's death, you did see a sense of opening but then I think you've seen the tightening up happening again more recently. Uh, and it's it's going to be interesting to watch where that goes, because I think Uzbekistan is a really important bellwether country for the region. Um, but then in terms of your point about the U.S. coming in, I mean, look, the U.S. Um, you know, came into the region. I say it was mostly driven post 9-11. You see the big push. And the idea around stuff like TAPI was really, and the other big one was the CASA 1000 project, which is about building electricity infrastructure from the region into Afghanistan, and ultimately over to Pakistan. Um, the idea there was really about Afghanistan. And the idea was how do we tie Afghanistan economically into its region? The idea being, if we do that, then Afghanistan maybe will be more stable in the longer term. Uh, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave a big speech in Chennai in 2011, where she kind of articulated this idea of a new Silk Road going that direction which the Chinese actually hated because they said, hey, Silk Road's ours, you know. Um, they didn't like that terminology and actually it didn't really go anywhere, in part because TAPI is, is a very difficult project. I mean, TAPI, for those who I'm talking about, as if everyone knows what it is, is the idea of a Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline. The idea being Turkmenistan has these huge hydrocarbon reserves. India, Pakistan will be recipient countries. You can build a pipeline across Afghanistan, it will benefit everybody. I mean... I'd be surprised if TAPI's done in our lifetimes, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's a very expensive project. It's going to cost about $10 billion to build. Who's going to foot that bill? And you're going to build it through Afghanistan, a country which, yes, is more stable now than it actually was under the republic, but still got pretty, you know, government which may or may not survive. Pipelines aren't quick to build. Who's going to pay for it? How's it going to happen? And then, of course, I don't need to talk about the trouble between India and Pakistan, who occasionally agree, but a lot of time disagree. Um, the IPI project is more likely in some ways, uh, because you could see the Iran-Pakistan links already exist, and so just case of extending them in some ways, but I think that's frankly uh, uh, also complicated by the Pakistan-India connections. But I mean, you know, this is a region, in the same way that we were talking earlier about great games, people love to talk energy geopolitics around this region, you know, pipelines here, pipelines there, or you get onto the ground, you look at the realities of these pipelines, they're very far fetched in some cases and tappy 
I would put on top of that list, frankly. You know, I mean, there's more logical pipelines you would build in the region of getting Turkmen energy to Europe, right? So you build some pipelines from Turkmenistan across the Caspian, get it into the very well-connected Azeri ones, and then over there you're over to you know European uh, Europe, which is a major consumer, which wants this energy now, especially as they're trying to cut it from Russia. But it's very difficult to do because the Turkmen and the Azeris don't agree. Where are they going to build it? Whose borders? Already, so there's a lot of discussion around some of these big ideas in the region, and it's very difficult. And Tapi is one that is, yeah. I mean, look, I've been traveling to the region for more than ten years. I've been hearing about it every single time. The Turkmen are very excited about about the moment. They built a pipeline actually to the border with Afghanistan to say we've done our part. Um, you know, so they got it to the border with Her near Herat, I think. Oh, no, no, is it Herat? Yeah, it is near Herat. Um, but then that's it. They can't afford the 10 billion it's going to cost to do the rest. So it kind of just gets to the border and then it's trucked over from there. But yeah. I mean, talking about pipe dreams. Yes. If we just exclude the variable of terrorism, and that's a big variable, we are talking about mountain area, harsh winter, and even especially near the Pakistan area, area prone to earthquake. So whatever you want to create issue in that, you, you have it there. Uh, no, natural reason, one thing I would just very bravely add to that is you're entirely right, natural uh, disasters and problems is one thing, but the interesting about terrorists is actually on TAPI in particular, the Taliban have said, and they said this when the Republic government was in power, they would protect it. <laughs> they said, we'd like, we'd like this infrastructure. The Taliban saw themselves as the future government of the country, and they saw this as a project which would bring money to the country, so they saw it as a good thing. So actually, they are actually pro it. So the Taliban isn't really the problem in a way. It's you know the other chaos and instability, which is. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. I have a last question from Zoom, from Claudia Chia, ISAS and US. And uh, this pretty interesting question is a $1 million question. How China disinformation campaign work to influence media in Central Asia? Um, so my million dollar question, I mean, I get a million dollars if I answer it correctly. And does this come from NUS? Yeah, if you answered the question. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so disinfo, Chinese disinfo in the region. Um, it's uh, an interesting one because, you know, I uh, China has tried to shape narratives in the region. Uh, it has, and it, it still does try to. And a lot of the engagement that it tries to do is quite, what I would describe as quite crude efforts of soft power. So what do I mean by crude? I mean, you know, finding local opinion formers and, you know, taking them on a nice trip to Shanghai, you know, showing them the sites and then sending them home where they, you know, suddenly have a good vision of China or commissioning them to write articles that, you know, you don't really need, but, you know, you pay them very well for it and they'll publish and this kind of helps shape some of the idea formers in the region. The other really interesting one is actually education. There are, they offer a lot of scholarships to Central Asians to come to China to get an education, right? And, uh, you know, for young Central Asians, they're looking for options, and this is not an unattractive one, you know? I mean, they may not love China, but, you know, learning Mandarin, going to work in the country, the world's second richest economy, which is your neighbor, is, doesn't seem like a bad idea, you know? And so as that generation grows up, I think it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting question to see how that develops. So, you know, and then there's Confucius Institute dots across the region, and we can see a lot of Chinese companies hire a lot of locals, send them back to China to get an education, and then teach them Mandarin. And, and so, so there's a lot of soft power links building there, and I think that is a kind of interesting side. And the reason I talk about that is because about influence. And so disinfo is kind of the negative side of influence. That's kind of positive side that I think the trend is trying to shape. On the disinfo side, it's um, 
it's a bit more complicated because what I think I, I haven't seen a huge amount of Chinese disinfo being pushed in the region. They've tried to shape some of the narratives around Xinjiang um, and what happens there. And that mostly comes from the government. Uh, they do try to push the local authorities to clamp down on distant groups they don't like. And usually, to be honest, they find a receptive ear. Um, so, for example, the, you know, the Falun Gong, who used to operate in Kyrgyzstan, was it 2005? I can't remember. 2006, I think. The Kyrgyz cracked down on them, you know, at Chinese request. Um, you know, on Xinjiang, we've seen, you know, back in the 1990s, we saw a big crackdown on a lot of Uyghur dissident organizations that were operating from Central Asia, and a lot of them left, actually. Uh, they were either imprisoned or they left mostly to Turkey. Um, some stayed, but a lot of them kind of stopped their political activity. And we still see the Chinese government tries to apply pressure on those particular issues. Um, but a lot of this isn't really disinfo, right? It's just trying to influence kind of narrative in, in a specific direction. The, the interesting disinfo anecdote I would add is, um, is during the pandemic in 2010, there was an, a set of articles which appeared in the Chinese social media, um, which were seemingly produced by a clickbait firm in Xi'an um, that was writing nationalist articles. And these nationalist articles were basically all about China's neighbors. And you know, in sort of, you know, grinding detail, they went, you know, one article each on each neighboring country. And it said, you know, Tajikistan was once part of China and will one day return to China and actually wants to return to China, you know? And so I don't remember the detail of the article, but anyway, it was basically, a, you know, an opinion article about a thousand words that was telling that's the summary of it, right? And it did it for each of the countries. Anyway, someone in Kazakhstan noticed the Kazakh one and they translated it into Kazakh and put it out into Kazakh social media. And this caused a huge storm. Yeah, because Kazakhs all know Chinese media is very controlled. So if, lo and behold, this has been published in the Chinese media, this must mean this is what Xi Jinping is thinking. Now, I tend to think actually it might have been an overeager clickbait farm and the censors in China were not paying attention <laughs> and the article slipped out and that's how it got out, you know, but I actually told that to someone the other day, they said, absolutely not. No, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. That was clearly signed off by the CCB. I'm, like, I'm not so sure. But anyway, putting that to one side, this caused a real problem. You know, it caused a real problem in, in Kazakhstan to the point where the ambassador was hauled in uh, to get a sort of dressing down by the Kazakh MFA. Um, and, you know, similar articles were actually published on Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And the Tajik one, I think, circulated, but no one reacted. In Kyrgyzstan, there was a bit of a reaction, but not much, frankly. Um, but there's a big reaction in Kazakhstan because it seemed to kind of crystallize fears that you were starting to see in the region that, you know, really China kind of wanted to take us over. I've actually seen very little evidence of that, frankly. China seems to have a much more, from my perspective, transactional view towards this region. Um, and that's what they kind of focused on. So, yeah, I, 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 on, the heart, on the actual kind of interference disinfo side, I can't say I've seen a vast, vast amount of it being shaped. What you have seen maybe, and maybe this goes more towards it, and I think this probably speaks to the region to some degree, is you've seen a lot of regional publications publishing essentially perspectives on what's happening in Xinjiang, which are, could have been written by Beijing. Um, and this tends to be because they have kind of agreements often with Chinese press to kind of republish their material, but also because the government doesn't really, you know, it's, they don't really want to, you know, they don't want to stir trouble in China, frankly. And so they will kind of allow that narrative to be advanced. So it's, it's difficult in a way, because you've got a region that's actually quite acquiescent to the Chinese perspective. And so as a result, there is kind of less of a need in some ways to do the kind of disinfo and influence shaping in that direction that you might see in kind of Europe, or you might want to do if you're China or in the United States or somewhere else, or even here in Singapore, dare I say it.
Raffaello, allow me in the name of Middle East Institute to thank you very much. I will have to start to count oh, the yeah. money for, for the latest question. Grazie. And uh, a big thanks to all our audience here and on Zoom for being with us today.